Welcome to the Weekend University Podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organized lecture days, where attendees get a full day of talks from leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. If you'd be interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, you can sign up for the early access list at theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. Um, I'm speaking on science and spiritual practices today. And we're in a very unusual situation at the moment, probably unprecedented. Although there's been a considerable decline in uh, traditional religion, there's been a tremendous upsurge of interest in spiritual practices in the modern world. Um, And there's also been a whole lot of scientific studies of the effects of these practices. What these studies uh, show, basically, is that religious and spiritual practices make people happier, healthier, and live longer. Um, And these are um, a very substantial body of work that's uh, been carried out. In 2012, the second edition of the Handbook of Religion and Health was published. It's about that thick. Um, It costs about £150. And it reviews more than 2,000 papers in peer-reviewed journals uh, studying the effects of a range of spiritual and religious practices. Um, So the... uh, These practices are good for people. People who do them are happier and healthier. Presumably, the converse is also true. Not doing these practices is bad for you. Presumably, it makes you unhappier and unhealthier. And we have a situation today when religious practices um, were used to be pretty universal. Um, Most people took part in regular religious uh, ceremonies and practices, and those always included spiritual practices. Each religion has its own selection, but um, singing together, for example, pilgrimage, fasting, um, there's a whole range of spiritual practices that are just part of a normal religious life. So when people stop being religious, um, then often all these practices cease then, of course, they can easily reclaim practices. There are many people who are spiritual but not religious who take up spiritual practices. Um, uh, But there are many people who stop their normal uh, ancestral religion and and don't take up any. Um, And I think that leads to a a sense of defect or deficiency. Um, This is the theme of a book by Alain de Botton, who's a popular philosopher, also an atheist. Um, In his book, Religion for Atheists, um, he points out how many things practicing atheists miss out on. And he then says what we need is atheism 2.0, where we can um, recover some of these practices uh, that traditional religious people do. One of his ideas is an atheist temple in London. He hasn't built it yet, but he's a very rich man, so he could. Uh, but he's already in- instituted atheist sermons on Sunday mornings in London. And it, his, his book is a serious attempt to grapple with this problem um, of lack of religion and yet 
uh, accepting the value of spiritual practices. The, um, the new generation of uh, militant atheists have actually taken up spiritual practices. Old-style atheists like Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett just rejected the whole lot. But the new uh, style, like Sam Harris, one of the so-called new atheists, um, accept the importance of spiritual practices. And Sam Harris is now giving online meditation courses. Um, there's also, as some of you will know, a, a, a non-religious church in England, the Sunday Assembly, um, which, where people meet together to sing together and to tell uplifting stories, um, which again is a response uh, to the need for spiritual practices, which many people feel if they've given up traditional religious ones. So the situation we're in um, is where these practices are being um, widely adopted, uh, whether people are religious or not. And that's the context in which uh, I wrote my book. And in it, I discuss seven different practices, meditation, gratitude, um, connecting with nature, uh, relating to plants, singing and chanting, rituals, and pilgrimage. And I'm going to be talking about some of those today. I won't have time to talk about them all. I'm going to start with gratitude. The study of gratitude has come about largely through the work of the School of Positive Psychology. As many of you will know, uh, this was a new branch of psychology within the academic world. Starting around 2000, it became established as a kind of official branch of psychology. And positive psychologists try to find out what makes people happy as opposed to more traditional psychology, which is more about what makes people miserable. Um, the um, traditional um, role of psychology has been to study what's wrong with people. I mean, and that's probably because the people who go to see psychotherapists, psychoanalysts, and so on, um, are people who've got problems. Um, but the positive psychologists were trying to find out what makes people happy. Uh, what enhances well-being. One of the preliminary series of studies in, in the 1980s and 90s uh, was looking at the conditions under which given people are happy. And to do that research, they had volunteers who were equipped with um, pages which went off at random times during the day. And they had to write down what they were doing and also how happy they felt on a one-to-nine scale. Um, and, of course, during the day, people's happiness fluctuated, as did the things they were doing. But what this revealed was that the occasions on which people felt happiest, where they were doing all sorts of different things, which at first seemed to have nothing in common. They, people often reported being happy when they were engaged in their work, when they were having a good conversation, when they were dancing or singing, uh, when they were playing games. And... Uh, and other things too. But what was in common between, between all these things was they felt that they were in a state of flow. They were part of something greater than themselves. And that seemed to be one of the ingredients for happiness. Uh, what made people unhappy was feeling bored, frustrated, alienated, separated, um, and not engaged. 
When they were studying happy people to find out what characteristics happy people had, uh, one of the things they found was that happy people tend to be people who are grateful. And grateful people who are happier people also are more popular. Uh, this was a widespread finding that they, they, they established. But then the critics said, well, of course these people feel more grateful. They're more grateful because they're happier. And so they wanted to find out... <laughs> They wanted to find out whether they were um, happy because they were grateful or grateful because they were happy. So they did actual experiments um, in which uh, they took groups of volunteers, divided them into three groups. One of the three groups was asked to write a list of all the things that had upset them in the previous week, uh, which had been hassles and problems. Another group wrote a story about something that had happened in the previous week. And the third group wrote a list of the things for which they felt most grateful, that had made them uh, happy in the previous week for which they felt grateful. And the group that simply made a list of things that had made them happy for which they felt grateful uh, were measurably happier for days afterwards compared with the other groups. The most effective of their experiments involved what they called the gratitude letter. They asked people to write a letter to acknowledge and thank someone who'd helped them in their lives who they hadn't properly thanked or acknowledged before. It could be a teacher, family member, a friend. Uh, so they wrote this letter, and then they went to that person and read it to them. And this had a huge effect. They were measurably happier for two months afterwards as a result of doing that. Something as simple and as brief as that had an enormous effect. Well, the, um, the idea of counting your blessings and being grateful for what you have is not, of course, a new idea. It's part of all religious traditions. All of them involve thanksgiving of one kind or another. And many, tradition, many religious traditions have traditional ways of giving thanks. Um, but there are now all sorts of ways you can do it. There are self-help books on gratitude. Um, and uh, they suggest a variety of exercises. One of them that works best for men, for example, is to have uh, some beans, dry beans, that you put in one pocket. And every time in the day uh, you, something happens for which you feel grateful, you take out a bean and think about the thing you're grateful for and put it in the other pocket until they've all moved from one pocket to the other and you put them back the next morning. Um, so you, you get the idea, and of course, since America, in America, everything, uh, every new idea is turned into a product, um, <laughs> you can now buy um, expensive gratitude journals uh, to write down what you're grateful for. Um, but of course, to put this into practice, you don't need to buy the self-help book or to buy an expensive gratitude journal. Uh, you can just make a list, either writing it down or mentally, every day. That's the simplest way to do this practice. Um, and there are other ways in which you can um, put into practice gratitude. It used to be traditional in most cultures for people to give thanks before meals uh, by saying grace or singing grace. And it still happens in some families and it happens in traditional institutions like my college at Cambridge, Clare College. Every evening um, at 7.30, everyone's in the dining hall, a gong goes, everyone stands up, and the senior fellow reads a long Latin grace. 
Now, most people probably don't understand the Latin. A lot don't pay much attention. But it does provide a kind of break, um, a, a pause, uh, where those who want to give thanks can. And that's a very traditional way of doing it. When the TV series Downton Abbey was going on, someone asked why they were never shown beginning a meal. And the answer was that around the time that film portrayed, around the time of the First World War, uh, when a family sat down to dinner, someone would have said grace. And they couldn't show them starting a meal because that would have involved showing them saying grace. And they didn't want to do that because it might offend atheists. So um, they couldn't show grace. Um, so anyway, but the point is they would have done it. And um, it's a very simple way to bring this back into one's life, uh, to, uh, to give thanks before a meal. At the moment, in most families, there's a kind of awkward pause before dinner. You know, there's a kind of empty space. No one quite knows what to do. And in England, usually people say something like, oh, do start, it'll get cold. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's possible to seize that opportunity. And what I do with my own family is we always hold hands before we eat in a circle. Um, and if it's just a few of us, we just hold hands silently. Um, if it's uh, more, then someone says a grace, usually me, or anyone who wants to lead in saying thank you in one way or another. Um, or if there are more of us, we sing a grace as a round. And it's, it's a, with a lot of people around the table, singing together before you eat is very effective. The whole atmosphere changes. Everyone's sort of glowing, even, it's, even though the song only lasts about a minute. Um, so this is one of the very simple ways in which one can bring back uh, a practice of gratitude as a spiritual practice uh, in everyday life. In my book, Science and Spiritual Practices, I suggest two simple practices at the end of each chapter. And this is one of the ones at the end of the chapter on gratitude. Now, how far you go in your gratitude depends on your worldview. If you're a materialist and you think that the universe is basically unconscious and evolution has happened by chance, then you may not feel you can give thanks to a conscious source of all nature or even nature itself, if it's unconscious and mechanical. But you can certainly give thanks to other people. Someone's prepared the food, people have grown it, they've, they've, they've produced it. Um, many people have gone into providing the food that we eat. If you take a more panpsychist view and you think of nature as alive rather than inanimate, you can give thanks to the earth and to the sun and to all the factors in nature that make the eating and our life possible. Um, you can give thanks to the earth, you can give thanks to the sun that enables plants to grow and life to exist on earth. You can give thanks for being alive in the first place, because none of us uh, are alive as a result of our own choice, decision or effort. We're all here because of billions of years of evolution and cosmic evolution and ancestral lines and ancestors who survived. Every one of us has ancestors who survived through natural selection, through hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution, and before that, uh, our animal ancestors. They all survived, and they lived under conditions that enabled them to survive. And if you believe that behind the universe there's a source of all things, a conscious source from which all things come, God, or whatever you choose to call uh, the ultimate source of, of conscious being, 
um, then you can give thanks to that too. But you could, it doesn't matter how far you go, there's always something you can give thanks for. And uh, as I say, one's worldview affects how far one might be inclined to go. But um, there's plenty to do, even if one has the most extreme kind of um, uh, materialist view, there's still a great deal to be thankful for. So there's, um, everyone has some reason to be thankful. Well, um, the second practice I want to mention is meditation. Now, I know that you had a session this morning, those of you who were here this morning, on uh, meditation. So I'm not going to go into that in enormous detail um, because you've already gone into it in some detail uh, today. All traditions have meditation in one form or another. And we're most familiar today with Hindu and Buddhist forms of meditation. But something very similar was going on in the Christian context from at least the fourth century when monasticism began. Um, monks and nuns were living in contemplative communities where they spent a lot of their time in contemplative prayer, which is the Christian name for meditation. Um, it's, it's not the word meditation was only really introduced in the late 19th century to cover this activity. Uh, the traditional view was contemplative prayer, which was um, uh, using, uh, often using a repetitive phrase or mantra. Um, and then in, in many, in the Eastern Orthodox and in the Roman Catholic tradition, many people use repetitive prayers with prayer beads or rosaries, which is again like a kind of mantra type of meditation. Um, in uh, the Sufi tradition in Islam, uh, there are various forms of meditation, including a mantra type of meditation using um, one of the names of God called a wazifa, um, which is very similar to Hindu mantras. And Sikhs have meditation and Jains have meditation. It's present in many traditions. There are two main kinds. There's the kind that involves mantras, where you use a phrase or a word or um, um, something you repeat silently to yourself or chant out loud. And there's the mindfulness type, which involves observing the breath or sensations in the body, but without a mantra. And many people um, do, uh, probably about half and half, uh, split. Both of them are very common in the modern world. How many people here meditate or have meditated? Oh, well, that's almost everybody. So <coughs> I don't need to tell you what it feels like, because you already know from your own experience. Um, well, as you know, there, there have been many studies on the effects of meditation. Uh, the first set of studies in the 1970s by Herbert Benson at Harvard and John Kabat-Zinn in Massachusetts, also in Massachusetts, um, were looking at the physiological responses. And Herbert Benson concentrated to start with on the, a, the relaxation response, the way in which meditation reduces stress. I don't know whether this morning you dealt with the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system aspect of this. Um, no. Well, the, the Benson was concentrating not so much on the brain, um, but on the physiological response of the body. As you know, we all have an unconscious 
body-based nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, which has two sides, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic. The sympathetic nervous system is nothing to do with sympathy, misleadingly enough. It's mostly to do with fear. Uh, when you're afraid of something, your sympathetic nervous system is activated, adrenaline goes through your bloodstream, your heart beats faster, your blood pressure goes up. Um, and you're in a state where you're ready to fight or run away, the fight or flight reaction. The opposite is the parasympathetic nervous system, which is about not being afraid. And it's only when that system is activated that you can carry out activities that require a relaxation of the body and lack of fear, making love, for example, um, eating a meal, even going to the lavatory. You can't do these things if you're hyperactivated with the, with the adrenaline system. If you're being chased across a field by an angry bull, your parasympathetic nervous system is fully activated, and good thing it is, it helps you run faster. Um, but the last thing you think of is making love or sitting down to dinner um, or going to the lavatory. These things are inhibited uh, by the sympathetic nervous system. Now, it's very necessary for us to have that response but in the modern world, a lot of people spend their time in a state of chronic anxiety. They're afraid almost all the time. They're worried about things or they're fearful of things that might go wrong or anxious. And this activates the chronic activation of the sympathetic nervous system, uh, which is very bad for health because it leads to elevated blood pressure and uh, stress reactions, stress, high stress hormone levels and so on. And what Herbert Benson found was that when people meditated, basically for those who were suffering from stress and anxiety, it greatly reduced the activity of the sympathetic nervous system and activated the parasympathetic nervous system. That's called the relaxation response. And as a result of that, uh, one of the effects of meditation is feeling more relaxed, being able to sleep better, um, and being able to be more effective in your life, and that's why many people do it. Um, what? Including for illness. Sorry? Including for illness. Yes. Um, so the the um, the parasympathetic nervous system um, that's a, a very important part of it, but the it also protects against depression, and. Um, as, I don't know if you discussed that this morning, but it's, it's now well established that people who meditate reg regularly are less depressed and less prone to depression than those who don't. Um, and the, uh, you can now get a prescription for depression on the National Health Service in some parts of Britain. Psychiatrists can actually prescribe a course of meditation for people who have mild or moderate depression because clinical trials have shown that it works better than antidepressant drugs and of course has fewer side effects and from the point of view of the National Health Service has the additional advantage of being cheaper. Um, so um, it, it has a protective effect against depression. So meditation has many benefits and as I do know you talked about this morning can lead to changes in brain activity. The main one when you're meditating is a reduction in the activity of the default mode network, the part of the connection of areas in the brain that are concerned with worries and ruminations. Um, and it can also lead to 
uh, long-term anatomical changes. Not very surprising, really, if you're doing particular things with your mind and hence with your brain, um, particular regions are going to become more active and the connections get uh, better established between them. Uh, the brain uh, is much more plastic than people used to think. We're not surprised if people who do weightlifting develop bigger muscles in their arms. And so it's not that surprising if people who meditate develop new uh, connections in their brains or stronger connections between particular regions of the brain. Now, all this is established by science. The benefits are well known. Uh, there are now, you can learn meditation all over the world. Um, and uh, lots of people do it, including practically everybody here. I do it myself. I, I was first did it in 1971 when I was a, a practicing atheist and um, was uh, attracted to transcendental meditation because you didn't have to believe anything. You just did it and you could see what it did. And that's the whole point about these spiritual practices. They're all based on experience. You don't have to start off with a belief system. Um, well, most people, you all, we all need belief systems. Everyone has belief systems. But you don't necessarily have to have a spiritual or religious belief system uh, to do these practices. Um, they're about experience and through uh, learning through your own experience. But the reason people meditated traditionally was not so they could be more successful in love and business or sleep better. or um, they, they, it, not, it wasn't these secular worldly benefits that pe we people were primarily meditating for. They were meditating because they thought it provided a way of uh, connecting with the ultimate source of consciousness. The Hindus explain this most clearly. In, in um, one of the main schools of Hindu philosophy, the idea is that the, everything in the universe depends ultimately on conscious being, the mind of God, Brahman, and that this ultimate consciousness is the source of everything in the universe. And the ultimate source is conscious. That's the whole point. The ultimate being is a conscious being. And the characteristics of Brahman um, are threefold, sat Chit, Ananda. Sat means being, it's conscious being. Chit means uh, consciousness, knowledge. Uh, it's to do with names and forms, the contents of consciousness. And Ananda is joy or bliss. And the idea is that the ultimate mind of the universe is complete, not going anywhere, not trying to go anywhere else. And, and it's utterly blissful, it's in a permanent state of bliss. So the purpose of meditation is to connect our minds with the ultimate mind of the universe. Hindus see all conscious beings as, as it were, fractal reflections of the divine mind. One of their principal metaphors is of buckets of water, lots of buckets of water um, just standing there and at night reflecting the moon. And in each bucket, you see a reflection of the moon. It looks like hundreds or thousands of different moons. But each of those is a reflection of the one moon, which is the source of all these reflections. And in the same way, all our minds are reflections of the ultimate mind and participate in its nature because they're derived from it. Um, so our conscious being is part of the ultimate conscious being. Atman, our individual consciousness, is Brahman. It's a, a, 
it's linked to it and is part of it. In the Kena Upanishad, um, it talks about um, the, the nature of this ultimate reality. There's a series of verses uh, which show, uh, get over this point quite clearly. One of them is, not that which is seen by the eyes, but that whereby the eyes can see. Know that alone to be Brahman, the Lord. Um, so it's the ability to see not what's seen. God is not a thing out there that you can study by space probes or scientific observations and quantitative measurements. It's the very ground of consciousness and knowledge itself. Another verse is not that which is known by the mind, but that whereby the mind can know. Know that alone to be Brahman. Um, or not that which is heard by the ears, but that whereby the ears can hear. It's the ground of consciousness itself that uh, links us to the ultimate reality. And sometimes um, teachers of meditation compare the, strain, the, the stream of thoughts that goes through our minds when we're meditating to the clouds passing through the sky. And normally you're completely involved in your thoughts, you're involved in your ruminations, you're totally gripped by this, these fears, anxieties, ruminations, resentments, uh, internal dialogue, and so on. But the meditation, by uh, concentrating on your breathing or sensations in the body, as in mindfulness, or on your mantra, uh, sort of splits your mind and detaches you partially from these thoughts. And then you become aware that your mind is more like the blue sky through which the clouds are passing, the ground of all these thoughts and ideas. And the more you become aware and present in that ground of consciousness, the more you become linked to the ultimate consciousness, to uh, the being on which all consciousness depends. And the more you're linked to that, the more blissful or joyful it is, because the more linked you are to this ultimate source of joy or bliss. So that's the, the way in which, roughly speaking, and very abbreviated, in which uh, this is understood in, uh, by many people in India. Um, the Christian understanding is rather similar, um, because all Christians like Hindus have the idea that God is ultimate consciousness and has three principal aspects. The ground of being in Christianity called the Father is essentially um, conscious being. And when Moses first met God in the desert in the burning bush and said, who are you? God said, I am who I am. It's a statement of the divine conscious being. It's defining God as conscious being and presence. Um, but God's mind contains thoughts, ideas, forms, shapes, um, logic, meaning, uh, contents. And that's the Logos, the second person of the Trinity. It's rather like a Christian assimilation of the Platonic realm of ideas into the divine being. Um, names and forms, as the Hindus call it. And the third aspect is the spirit, which is the dynamic principle of God, which is the breath, the wind, the flow of life, um, and uh, is also uh, joy or bliss. St. Augustine, one of the early theologians, um, thought of the Holy Trinity as the knower, the known, and the joy of knowing. Uh, again, it's sort of the, the ground of being or knowing as the Father, the Son, or the Logos as the known or the second person uh, defined in forms, shapes, connections, meanings, and the joy uh, uh, of the Spirit.
So these um, spiritual practices actually traditionally have been designed to connect us with the ultimate reality. And different practices connect us with different aspects of it. Um, you can find similar parallels to this threefold um, um, division in uh, Sufism. And you can find uh, in, in Buddhism too, there's a threefold um, classification of the levels of being or consciousness. Um, so the idea is that these practices connect us with the ultimate. But different practices connect us with different aspects of the ultimate. And meditation connects us more with the ground of being, sat, that state of pure consciousness, or the ground of consciousness itself, rather than the contents of consciousness. If you're looking at the beauty of flowers, for example, and you're absorbed in the contemplation of the beauty of these forms, um, then um, this is more connecting with, with chit, names and forms, the, the, um, the contents of consciousness, of divine consciousness. Because uh, the idea is that all these forms ultimately are reflections of the divine mind. Uh, and then if you're engaged in uh, some activity which is very active, which has a spiritual dimension as many sports do, um, then it's more to do with the spirit, the principle of flow, movement and change. Um, and also um, where dancing and music become spiritual practices, it's more dealing with this dynamical aspect of the spirit. But meditation is more to do with the ground of it. Now, you don't have to believe all this um, or even take it seriously to meditate. And most people who meditate don't. And Sam Harris, for example, is, um, goes on being a militant atheist, even though he's an experienced meditator and teaches meditation. Um, he can believe that it's all inside the brain, that there's nothing going on beyond his own brain that's generating these sensations of a connection with a greater being, but there isn't really a greater being, it's just something that's happening as a result of dopamine release and connections inside the brain. And all of us have the choice, really, what to believe. Do we trust our own direct experience? Um, when we have the experience of our mind being connected with something far greater than ourselves? Or do we trust a theory, the materialist theory, that says the mind is nothing but the activity of the brain, therefore it's all inside the head? Uh, a theory which is notoriously poor on understanding consciousness. The very existence of consciousness is the hard problem from the materialist theory. Um, that's a question we all have to make, whether we put that theory first or our own experience first. We may start, as I did when I started meditating, with a materialist theory of the mind. I thought it was all inside my head. But partly as a result of my own experiences, I came to the conclusion that was too narrow a view and it was better to trust my own direct experience of consciousness. And this is, again, a point where science and spiritual practices uh, come into a fairly close uh, connection because science, after all, is based on the experimental method, experience. Um, uh, experiments mean it, it, empirical, means experience. Experiments are about experience. And spiritual experience is about experience too. Um, science is ultimately based on experience. And in French, the same word, experience, means experiment and experience. Um, so when we're exploring consciousness, 
um, is it better to explore it externally through studying the brain or internally through uh, the actual experience of consciousness itself? And meditation enables us to explore the nature of consciousness directly. Um, well, and ideally, I think we need both. And that's what the scientific study of spiritual practices is giving us. But it doesn't necessarily commit us to a reductionist view that is nothing but the activity of the brain. It's true that when people have mystical experiences, particular parts of the brain become active. But that doesn't prove it's nothing but the brain. You're having a non-mystical experience right now of seeing me standing here. And if someone measured your brain activity, there would be changes in your brain associated with the image of me and hearing my words, um, which would be changes, measurable changes in your brain. Uh, but the fact there are measurable changes in your brain when you see and hear me doesn't prove, prove I'm nothing but your brain. Um, fortunately, I, for me, I have an independent existence. And, um, uh, and um, there, there, it's a kind of interaction. And so it may well be that when our consciousness connects with higher forms of consciousness, if such forms exist, um, that the brain changes in particular ways, but it doesn't prove that it's nothing but those changes in the brain. So um, now I, I just want to say something about um, rituals. All traditions have rituals. Um, and I want to focus first, before we have our short break, on rites of passage. All societies have rites of passage, which are when somebody moves from one social role to another. And the most fundamental rites of passage are concerned with birth and death, which are the ultimate passages. One, you become alive, and the other, you stop being alive. Other rites of passage include marriage, where you stop being a single person and become a founder of a new family. Um, and all societies have their ways of celebrating this. And there are many uh, societies have rites of passage for when people pass from adolescence to maturity and become a mature man or woman, an uh, adult member of the society. Um, in uh, some Native American tribes, for example, they have vision quests where Young men go out into the wilderness fasting, um, confronting great dangers, and then find a vision for what their role is in society, and then come back and are welcomed into the circle of men and the circle of adults uh, as members of that and mature members of that society. Many uh, rites of passage involve a theme of death and rebirth, that you die to your old role and you're born again in a new way. And I think that some of them actually involve near-death experiences. They involve trials by ordeal or pushing people to extreme limits where they basically uh, nearly die. Um, now, we know more about near-death experiences today than people have ever known before, largely because more people than ever before actually have them. Thanks to the advances of modern medicine, Many people who would have died 50 years ago or 100 years ago of heart attacks or medical emergencies now survive. And many of those who've been, who they, they've actually been dead for a minute or two or as near dead as can be and come back to life report 
what are now called near-death experiences. Some of you probably in this room have had them because they're relatively common. I should guess at least 10 or 20 people here have had them. Um, and they've now been uh, described uh, scientifically, partly through subjective reports and partly through actually measuring the brain states of people uh, during heart operations uh, when their, their heart is stopped and, and they actually have near-death experiences on the operating table while they're being monitored. Basically what happens to people when they have these experiences is that they find themselves floating out of the body, usually looking down on their body um, with nurses and doctors doing things to them. Then they often go through a tunnel, a dark tunnel, and emerge into a realm of bliss, light, and joy. And when they're in that realm, they feel immensely welcomed, loved. Uh, they sometimes meet people, deceased relatives or friends, who welcome them. They feel utterly blissful, joyful, loved, and are having a wonderful time being there. But it doesn't last long because it's only a near-death experience, and they have to go back. And um, very often when people have had these experiences, uh, they say it's completely changed their life they've lost the fear of death, uh, they often become more spiritual people and members of their family often notice their behavior has changed and it usually in they usually behave better to other people. So these have a very transformative effect, even though the whole experience may only last a few minutes. It changes people's lives. And these don't depend on spiritual practice, they come unbidden as a result of medical emergencies. Uh, so, not all spiritual experiences come as a result of spiritual practices. Some of them happen spontaneously, like spontaneous mystical experiences and near-death experiences. Now, of course, the exact status of near-death experiences is heavily disputed. For people who are committed materialists, then all this has to be a kind of hallucination inside the brain. Um, they can't prove it's inside the brain, but they assume all experience is nothing but the brain, therefore it must be inside the brain, even if the brain shows no measurable activity. But for those who are not committed to the materialist point of view, um, it's, they, they take them at their face value, that there's some consciousness can, uh, under certain conditions, separate from the body and enter realms of experience that seem to be disembodied outside the physical body which is still lying there um, on a bed with nurses and doctors resuscitating it. Um, but we don't need to um, discuss the theoretical basis of this to look at the anthropological significance. If people found practices which could actually induce near-death experiences, they would be very powerful initiatory practices because they could take people into a near-death state which would, as we know from modern near-death experiences, transform that person. Now, is it possible this has happened or does happen? And the answer is yes. Um, I think the most obvious example, it's not obvious at first sight, but on reflection it, it has been hiding in plain sight is baptism. We read in the New Testament that John the Baptist um, was baptizing large numbers of people in the River Jordan by holding them under the, the water. Um, and people were flocking from all over uh, the Holy Land to the Jordan to be baptized by John. One of them was Jesus. 
And we have a subjective report of Jesus' experience where he felt, for the first time, his direct connection with God, his direct bondage, his bonds to God, his, the fact he was deeply and closely related to God. And this was immediately followed by him going on a vision quest, 40 days fasting in the wilderness, which happened before he began any of his public work. Um, so his rite of passage was baptism by John the Baptist, and this is very clear from the Bible. Now, the usual interpretation of John the Baptist's activities is that he was uh, creating a symbolic uh, rite or ritual of death and rebirth by drowning, holding them under so they symbolically drown and then bringing them up uh, so it's symbolic uh, um, birth again after a symbolic death by drowning. But why settle for something symbolic when you can have the real thing? <laughs> it would only take a couple of minutes longer. And so what I'm suggesting is that John the Baptist was a drowner. And, and I think he held them under just long enough to induce a near-death experience. I imagine that he would have had a team of helpers on the bank of the Jordan resuscitating people afterwards <laughs> and debriefing them. And, and there would have been a line of people waiting and it, well, then it would have been, next please, and the next one would have come. I mean, he was doing this on a large scale. Um, and it was quick. Uh, it's a very quick way of inducing a near-death experience. Um, now, after a few generations in the early church, people had stopped doing this. They started baptizing babies by sprinkling water over them or even by immersing them very briefly in water. But then it really was symbolic of death and rebirth by drowning. But in, to start with, I don't think it was symbolic at all. And I think that the fact these people said their life was completely changed as a result of it makes much more sense if it was a real experience. Anyway, it died out in, in most Christian churches. Um, but at the, in that intense religious ferment of the Protestant Reformation, um, some of the reformers read the Bible in English or German or uh, other European languages and realized this was clearly what had been going on then, originally. And it wasn't happening anymore. So what they said is we should reintroduce this practice. Um, and the, those who did were some of the most radical religious groups at the Reformation. They were called Anabaptists. Anna means again. They were baptizing people again by total immersion. And I think inducing a death and rebirth experience. Now, of course, they and John the Baptist might have lost a few. Um, but, and I certainly wouldn't have wanted to be baptized by a novice. I mean, I, you'd want someone who'd had plenty of experience. Um, but that was before uh, liability litigation. And, um, so um, I think that's what uh, John the Baptist and the Anabaptists uh, might well have been doing. And the Anabaptists of all the people at the Reformation, were the ones who went around saying they'd died, they'd been born again, and they'd seen the light. Now, that would have been a literal statement of their experience if they'd had near-death experiences through partial drowning. Um, it would have been literally true. And they were filled with a fervor and a sense of illumination and direct connection with God. Um, 
And of course, that made them very unpopular with uh, Protestants and Catholics, the sort of regular church authorities, because um, it meant these people were claiming a direct connection with God, and not just doing it through rituals and ceremonies and so on, but uh, through a ritual that actually totally transformed them. And so they were persecuted in Europe. Um, they were mainly in England, Germany, Holland, and Switzerland. And in the 17th century, when the chance arose, most of them went to America and in subsequent centuries to escape persecution, where they uh, became the ancestors of current Baptists in America, the Southern Baptists, other Baptists, the Mennonite and the Amish churches, who still practice baptism by total immersion, as do English Baptists. Well, um, I don't know how many contemporary Southern Baptists in Texas and places still hold people long enough to induce a near-death experience. I suspect they don't because health and safety regulations and so <laughs> would make them very conscious of the dangers. Um, but I think when we look at what happened to the Anabaptists and this sense of being it, dying, being born again and seeing the light, it makes total sense in the light of this uh, ritual. Now, just uh, one further point on this. I think the lack of rites of passage today is one reason why um, so many people um, enjoy uh, or, you know, or take psychedelic drugs. So, so many teenagers take them. I think because they're looking for a kind of rite of passage. And these drugs actually induce uh, near-death types of rites of passage in some cases. DMT, dimethyltryptamine, the most intense of psychedelics, um, only lasts about 10 minutes, but it gives many people the feeling of dying, traveling out of their body, going through a tunnel into a realm of light, bliss, and joy, and then coming back again. And it's a transformative effect for most people who've done it. LSD often has this effect too. When Stan Groff, the uh, a Czech psychiatrist, was studying LSD in the 1960s in Prague and later in America before it became illegal, he found that he studied 2,500 people who'd taken it. He found it was relatively common for people to have an experience where they found themselves extremely uncomfortable, constricted, being crushed or trapped. And then escaped by going through a tunnel and emerged into the light where it was blissful and joyful and everything was completely different. Um, and uh, again, it was like a near-death experience. I have to say, I had one myself when I first took LSD in 1970. Um, it was more or less as Stan Graf describes. And it had a huge effect on, on me. And, um, um, it's very strong. So, uh, no, we'll, come, we'll come to questions later. Um, uh, so, um, anyway, this was um, something that for me was very significant. And um, I think that for many people who take these drugs, it does have this rite of passage effect. In fact, one of the things that's changing the consciousness of our whole culture is psychedelics. And Michael Pollan's recent book, How to Change Your Mind, The New Science of Psychedelics, um, has made this more or less mainstream. Now, of course, it's still illegal here in England, and lots of people take psychedelics under very bad conditions when they may induce psychosis, they're not supported by experienced people, they do them in highly unsuitable circumstances. So the indiscriminate use of psychedelics is definitely not a good thing. Um, 
But there are now psychedelic churches uh, where you can actually take them as part of a ceremony, and of course, shamanic psychedelic ceremonies. Um, in Brazil, the Santo Daime Church is a church which uses ayahuasca, which is a psychedelic brew from the Amazon, as a kind of communion. And members of this church actually take this together in, in a special kind of communion service. And so they're um, um, a result of Catholic missionaries going to the areas of the Amazon where traditional shamanic cultures took ayahuasca as a psychedelic healing compound uh, mixture. And so we've now got this hybrid religion uh, which is spreading rapidly in Europe. There are hundreds of psych underground psychedelic uh, churches now in London and uh, elsewhere in Britain and Europe uh, where people are doing these ceremonies. It's sometimes called a reverse missionary movement. Um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, so what we're dealing with here is rites of passage, which are rituals which give this particular transformative experience. Um, there are many other kinds of ritual, um, and I'm going to come back to those after the break, but Neil told me um, it's your custom and need to have a break. So we're going to have a short five-minute break, and then we'll start again. Before the break, I was talking about rites of passage. Now I want to say something about rituals of remembrance. All societies have stories of their origins um, which account for why the social group is as it is. And um, all of them uh, have ways of reenacting these origins in rituals. For example, Jewish people every year celebrate the ritual of the Passover. It's a major Jewish festival. And what this does is reenacts the original story of the Passover Jewish people were slaves in Egypt. Uh, Moses was trying to lead them to freedom, um, and the pharaoh wouldn't let them go. So there were a series of ten plagues visited on Egypt to persuade the pharaoh to let them go. And the last plague was the killing of the firstborn of all the Egyptians and of their cattle. And the Jewish people were immune from this uh, slaughter, because uh, Moses told them to kill a sheep instead and smear the blood on the doorway of their house. And so they were passed over. And the next morning, uh, then they ate the lamb with bitter herbs in haste, uh, ready to leave. And sure enough, the next morning, the pharaoh said, go, just get out. I don't want you here anymore. And they set off on their journey through the wilderness to the promised land, an epic event in Jewish history. So every year, this feast of the Passover is reenacted with lamb and bitter herbs, uh, and the story is told. And by taking part in it, Jewish people become Jewish. They affirm their identity as Jewish by participating, and they connect with all those who've done it before them through all the generations back to the first Passover. The Christian Holy Communion is very similar. Uh, it was itself originally a Passover dinner with Jesus and his disciples, and um, Christians all over the world reenact ritually that Last Supper of Jesus with his disciples in the Holy Communion with bread and wine. By taking part in this communion, they become part of the Christian community and connect with all those who've done it right back to the very first Holy Communion. The American Thanksgiving dinner is a secular 
um, national ritual uh, happens in November. Every November, Americans gather uh, with friends and family to do this Thanksgiving dinner, which reenacts the original Thanksgiving dinner of the first settlers in New England in 1619. They had a dinner to give thanks after their first year surviving there um, with turkey, an American bird unknown in Europe um, and until then. Um, and this reenactment of the original Thanksgiving dinner uh, makes Americans American and connects them to those first settlers. So we find in all cultures these kinds of rituals and, and many other kinds of ritual as well. Uh, and in these rituals, people have to do things in a similar way to the way it's done before. Rituals are repetitive in their structure. And they often use uh, archaic languages. The Brahminic rituals of India use Sanskrit. Um, the Rituals of the Coptic Church in Egypt use ancient Egyptian, the only form in which it survives. The rituals of the Russian Orthodox Church use Old Slavonic, um, and so on. Why is it that rituals are so conservative? And why is it that people think that by doing things in such a similar way as the way it's been done before, that they'll reconnect across time with all those who've done it before them, that they'll be connected to those who are in the present who are doing it, but also those who've done it in the past. Well, one possible explanation is provided by the idea of morphic resonance. Um, this is my own hypothesis, and unfortunately I don't have time to explain the hypothesis, but it's basically the idea of that memory has a, there's a kind of memory in nature. The laws of nature are more like habits. Each species has a kind of collective memory, a bit like what Jung called the collective unconscious. And morphic resonance is the process whereby patterns of activity in the past resonate across time with patterns in the present on the basis of similarity. <clears throat> now, what rituals do is create the very conditions for morphic resonance by doing things in a similar way as possible to the way they've been done before. They create the conditions whereby present participants will enter into a kind of resonance with all those who've done them before. They will, in fact, be connected to those who've done them before. There will, in fact, be a presence of the past uh, through taking part in this ritual, which is exactly what people think they're doing in rituals. So I think this gives a new interpretation of these um, uh, rituals and makes much more sense of them uh, than they might otherwise seem to make. They're certainly very powerful to take part in effective rituals, and that's why all cultures have them, and if they've lost them, they usually reinvent them, because they're uh, very important for our sense of belonging and connection. Finally, I want to say a few words about pilgrimage. All our ancestors were hunter-gatherers. I mean, all of us in this room had hunter-gatherer ancestors, Settled agriculture didn't begin in northern Europe till about 5,000 years ago, and nowhere in the world did it begin until about 10,000 years ago. Um, and before that, people lived by hunting and gathering. And hunter-gatherers had to move around. They couldn't just sit in one place and wait for animals to come to them and fruit to drop into their laps. They moved around the landscape, and when they in a cycle, an annual cycle, and each place, significant place on the way, they told the story um, or sang the story, as in the American Aboriginal song lines. Um, 
So moving and going to sacred places was part of our deep heritage. When people settled down, they still continued to go to holy places. Um, for example, in England, uh, when agriculture first began, people built great ceremonial centers like Stonehenge. Um, they were not temples in the middle of a city. They, people were scattered all over the countryside. But people converged on these holy places for the main festivals, at the solstices, for example. Um, then they went home again. And this became a kind of pilgrimage to a holy place. Um, all religions have pilgrimage. Muslims go to Mecca uh, and to the other holy places like the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. Um, Buddhists go to the birthplace of the Buddha and the place he was enlightened. Hindus go to Mount Kailash in Tibet, to the source of the Ganges, to the holy city of Varanasi. Oh, well, um, it says no input and it's quite true. But, uh, it's, uh, um, um, so, um, I don't know if, oh, it's gone. Um, so, um, and the, there are many other holy places in India. India is crisscrossed with pilgrimage routes. And medieval Europe was like that too. There were many pilgrimage sites in medieval Europe, uh, places where saints' relics were kept, holy mountains like Croke Patrick in Ireland, ancient holy places, or the cave of Saint-Baume in Provence, which were much more ancient holy places that were Christianized. Um, and Europe was full of these routes. Here in England, the two most important were the pilgrimage to Canterbury, to the relics of uh, St. Thomas Becket, who was martyred in the cathedral, and to the shrine of Our Lady of Walsingham, the Black Madonna of Walsingham in Norfolk. Um, and there were many others all over England. At the Protestant Reformation, pilgrimage was simply abolished. In 1538, Thomas Cromwell, here in England, issued an injunction against pilgrimage, making it illegal. And the infrastructure for pilgrimage was the monasteries, which provided food and shelter to traveling pilgrims, and those were dissolved. So the infrastructure was destroyed, the shrines were destroyed, the image of Our Lady of Walsingham, the Black Madonna, was taken from it, the shrine and burned in a public bonfire. And there was this kind of total wiping out of this tradition in Britain and in northern Germany and in Scandinavia, in the Protestant countries. This left a great void in the soul of the English, um, and I think that's why after a few generations the English invented tourism. And <laughs> I think tourism is best seen as a form of secularized pilgrimage. Um, tourists still go to the uh, great holy places, the ancient temples of Egypt, the temples of India, the great cathedrals of Europe. But when they get there, they can't say a prayer or make an offering um, because they have to pretend they're modern, enlightenment-type educated people who've risen above all this kind of superstition. So they have to pretend they're primarily there because of an interest in art history. So <laughs> guides spring up to fill their minds with facts when the building was built, by which king, how many tons of stone it contains, etc., etc. Um, facts that go in one ear and come out the other. Um, uh, because they, they have to pretend uh, that they're primarily there for facts, but they're not. And in fact, I think it's best seen as a form of frustrated pilgrimage. Um, real pilgrims go with an intention. Uh, they make an offering. 
in India and in many other places, they walk round the place they're visiting first before going in, circumambulating, making it the center. And they make offerings. They ask for blessings or healing or give thanks. Um, and then they bring something back to share with their friends and family. In India, people bring back blessed food called prasad, uh, which they share uh, with uh, people. Um, and this is much, much more satisfying than going as a tourist. And it's very interesting that in modern secular Europe, there's an astonishing revival of pilgrimage going on right now. Starting in the 1980s, a group of people in Spain re-established the infrastructure to the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. Um, and 1,000 people walked there in 1987. 300,000 walked there last year. And this has helped to trigger off a revival of pilgrimage elsewhere in Europe. There's now the old pilgrimage route to Trondheim Cathedral, the shrine of St. Olaf in Norway, has been revived and is now a major place of pilgrimage in Northern Europe. That's in the last 10 years. And in Britain, there's an organization called the British Pilgrimage Trust, which is reopening the ancient footpath pilgrimage routes to the great holy places of England, including cathedrals, holy trees, sacred wells, uh, um, ancient um, um, stone monuments and so on. And uh, you can find, there's more than 30 of them, uh, routes there on the website britishpilgrimage.org. I've been doing this uh, for the last few years, um, every year with my teenage godson. Um, when he was 14, I didn't know what to give him for his birthday, which is in June. And I've stopped giving people stuff, because most people have got too much stuff. Um, I now give experiences. And so I thought, what can I give this 14-year-old boy uh, as an experience? I'm his godfather. So I thought a bit, and then it suddenly came to me, a pilgrimage. So I said to him, I said, you may or may not want to do this, but my offer is, uh, we take the train from London, we get off at a little village station called Chartham near Canterbury, about eight or nine miles from Canterbury. We walk through the ancient North Downs Pilgrim Way to Canterbury through fields, meadows, orchards, and woods. We visit the Black Prince's Well, a medieval healing well with clear water in kind of under a mossy arch and mossy steps going down to it. We walk into Canterbury, we circumambulate the cathedral, we light candles at the shrine, we go with an intention, something we're asking for. Um, and then we have a cream tea. Um, and, and then we go to Choral Evensong, which is this very beautiful sung service that happens in all our cathedrals every single day. Again, you can find about, about that on another website called choralevensong.org. Um, so I said, we go to Choral Evensong, and then we take the train home. I said, would you like to do that? And without hesitation, he said, yes. And we had a very blissful day. It was an utterly wonderful day. Um, and then when he was 15, uh, we went to uh, Ely Cathedral. We took the train to Waterbeach and walked along the towpath of the Cam. And Ely Cathedral rises above the fens in this hugely impressive great medieval building. When he was 16, we walked to Lincoln along the Lincoln Ridge on a footpath on the Lincoln Ridge to what I think is one of our finest cathedrals, Lincoln. Again, lit candles at the shrine, had tea, and, and went to Coral Evensong and came home. And then he was 17, we went to Wells Cathedral, and this year we went to Winchester. Um, we took the train 
um, to a village near Winchester. We walked from Twyford, a beautiful village, uh, along the River Itchin, a fast-flowing, beautiful river, um, up St. Catherine's Hill, where there's an ancient turf labyrinth, which, so we walked the labyrinth. Then we went on the outskirts of West Winchester to St. Cross, which is a medieval hospital for old people, for old men. And because it was not for monks, it was not dissolved at the Reformation. It looks a bit like an Oxford college, a courtyard with a chapel. And under their medieval statutes, they have to provide the pilgrim's dole to any pilgrim who requests it, um, a, a, a mug of beer and a slice of bread. So we went to the porter's lodge and I requested the pilgrim's dole. Um, I said, we're pilgrims, we're on our way to Winchester Cathedral. And the porter said, all right, she said, I, uh, you, you've asked for it, you'll get it. She said, but you have to ask, and I'm glad you've asked. And she brought us the beer and the bread. And then she looked at my godson and she said, is he over 18? And <laughs> I said, well, actually, yes, he was 18 last week. That's why we're doing this pilgrimage. It's for his birthday. And so she said, okay, well, you can have it. And she said, and she gave it to him. She said, but it won't be so much fun now it's legal, she said. <laughs> um, Anyway, we had a blissful day this year, and since there are something like 45 cathedrals in England, uh, this is a formula that can go on and on. Uh, um, so um, this is a, a, in fact, I was doing one just yesterday. We're developing a series of one-day routes, the British Pilgrimage Trust, and I'm helping with this. And I was uh, helping you know, a group of us in Nottinghamshire developing a new route, a new old route to Southall Cathedral, which is the Cathedral of Nottinghamshire. I had uh, absolutely, I, got, I just got off the train to come here. I got mud, I'm afraid, on my, um, from the, the pilgrimage. But um, it's a wonderful practice, and it's something you can do with friends or families or on your own, or you can do it in a group. British Pilgrimage Trust arranges groups doing it. And one of the slogans of the British Pilgrimage Trust for groups doing pilgrimages is bring your own beliefs. Um, so it's not about, again, it's not about you've got to sign up to a belief system first. Many people who go to Santiago are not practicing Christians. Many are, some are even atheists. But um, it's an expression of a spiritual quest uh, which anyone can take part in. So this is another spiritual practice which is open to everybody and I strongly recommend it if um, any of you feel inclined and to do this. You can do either long ones, there's an 18-day route to Canterbury from Winchester or there's these one-day pilgrimages five or six miles or if you do the whole day, seven or eight miles um, to cathedrals or other holy places here in Britain. Well, that's a, a summary of some of the um, spiritual practices I discuss in my book. And um, it gives you a flavor. Um, there are only seven spiritual practices in this book. I, I'm writing a second book, a sequel with another seven. I'm not going to go on beyond that. Fourteen's enough as examples. But there are many other spiritual practices too. Um, and these are all practical things you can actually do. And they're all things which had, have measurable effects, which can be studied scientifically. So there's no conflict here between science and spiritual practice. In fact, I think that they mutually reinforce each other because the scientific studies illuminate these practices and also show us statistically what benefits they can have. 
And the practices themselves can be helped through the science. I mean, you could uh, meditate more effectively uh, if you know more about the, the science behind it. Um, so, and, and particularly in spiritual practices associated with psychedelic drugs, they're extremely science-dependent, especially the ones that um, depend on modern synthetic drugs as opposed to herbal brews. Um, so I think we're entering an era where science and spiritual practices can be seen as complementary rather than in any sense contradictory. And personally, I find that very helpful because I myself do all the spiritual practices I discuss in this book. Um, I'm also a practicing scientist and spend most of my time in research. Um, and I personally don't experience a conflict between them at all. Um, and I think that they provide, a, a, illuminate a way forwards for many of us who've grown up in a very secular society, an unprecedentedly secular society, uh, in fact, um, but uh, not one that is spiritually inert at all. There's a kind of ferment of spirituality going on at the moment, and I think we're actually on the threshold of a new phase of spiritual evolution. Thank you. Yes, so if you'd like to ask a question or make a point, uh, ask Neil, not me. He's going to choose who does it. Um, I'm just going to talk. He's going to have the hard decisions. Yes. Hello, everybody. Um, you talked about gratitude in the beginning, and I would like to uh, show my gratitude uh, to you uh, for the trialogues that you did uh, with Terence. I was inspired uh, by it like very much. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. Those were, um, for those who haven't seen them, I did a long series of trialogues with two very good friends, Terence McKenna, who was an explorer of psychedelic uh, use of uh, psychedelic shamanism, and Ralph Abraham, who is a chaos mathematician from the University of California in Santa Cruz. Terence sadly died in the year 2000. Uh, Ralph's still alive and we still meet on a regular basis. But these were some of the most exciting conversations I've ever had. And we, we used to spend several days together every year just talking. The first 10 years, we just talked. The next 10 years before Terence died, um, um, various friends said, oh, you must record these. And, and so they, they were recorded. There's about 30 of these online on my website, and there are three or four on YouTube that were also filmed. Um, but our aim in those conversations was to go where, without a particular agenda, just seeing where it would lead. And um, because they were both such exciting people to talk to, they, they were immensely stimulating. And it, it's wonderful that people can still listen to them now years later, and they trigger off conversations for many other people too, which is, I'm sure, what Terence would have been really pleased to know if he was still with us. I'm just a very quick uh, continuation of what he said, because throughout your talk, and you've just brought up an enormous sense for me of wanting to dance. So I just mm. wanted to thank you. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm. 
Are there any future plans uh, where you may want to go on stage with uh, conversations that you have with other people about your experiences? Pardon? Any? Uh, do you have any plans to do like public um, um, conversations with the people that oh. you? Uh, well, I do actually already. I've, I have a series of podcasts with Mark Vernon, who's a, a very good friend. Um, we've done over 30. Then we, we're meeting next week to do the next couple. Um, I've done this whole series with Matthew Fox, who some of you may know of. And um, again, those are on my website. And several with Mark Andrus, who's the Anglican Bishop of California at Grace Cathedral, who's a great friend of mine. And those conversations are particularly helpful because um, he's very open to the idea of you know, using cathedrals in a new and more adventurous way. And I'm, we're, con we're discussing all sorts of ways in which this could happen, since they are places which are designed to induce experiences that take you beyond yourself. Hello, thank you for being, bringing so much erudition to the science and spirituality conversation. Um, I had a question around awareness and whether you think it's possible to be aware without having an object of awareness. And two, from a spiritual perspective, isn't worshipping of any sort of entity like Brahman or God or whatever, just simply worshipping of awareness? Thank you. Yes. Well, I think that the... Some people in a state of meditation, when most of the time when I meditate, there's a constant stream of thoughts, and I go back to my mantra. Um, but there are periods when the thoughts stop, and, and even the mantra stops, and then there's just this sense of being in a state of awareness. And in my case, it doesn't happen very often. But when it does, it's a wonderful experience. Um, and I think many people achieve that state of being through meditation. Um, some people have spontaneous mystical experiences. I mean, I've had quite a few myself, which just come on unbidden. Um, and again, there's this sense of this conscious presence um, that one's in some vastly greater consciousness than one's own. And uh, again, there's this sense that it's, it's conscious. This ultimate ground of being is essentially conscious. Um, so I think that that, again, is an experience. And I think actually all religions start from that experience of conscious presence. And the Buddha didn't become enlightened through doing a PhD at SOAS. Um, um, he became enlightened through spending years meditating, learning from yogis and sitting under trees and meditating. Uh, Jesus didn't have his sense of being part of the divine nature. Um, through studying at a rabbinical seminary. I mean, it came to him through this near-death experience at baptism and through other uh, prayer and meditation and other mystical experiences. So I think that all religions start from this sense of connection with a direct, a greater form of consciousness than our own. But we're not always in that state of illuminated awareness. And I think many of the religious and spiritual practices are about connecting to it, worshipping or paying homage to or praying to uh, a state of consciousness which is there all the time and in all of us, but which we're normally separated from by our mundane concerns. So I, yes, I think the ultimate reality is awareness or consciousness, and indeed that's what all traditions tell us. 
Hi, um, my question is, as uh, nearly death experiences can be induced by the use of uh, psychedelics, can they be merely um, uh, reduced to a change of chemicals in the brain, or there is something more? Well, you see, I think it's something more. If, it depends on your worldview. You see, if you're a materialist and you believe that consciousness is brain activity, or as the materialists often say, minds are what brains do. If you think that consciousness is nothing but brain activity, then you have to say it's nothing but chemical changes in the brain, neurotransmitters are blocked or enhanced or levels of dopamine increase or something like that. And there are these chemical changes in the brain. After all, psychedelics are chemicals and they do have chemical effects. That's why they work. Um, but again, you get this question of, is it nothing but that? Um, like, is it nothing but uh, your brain that enables you to hear me now and, and see me now? Or is there something else really there? And the answer is, yes, there is. There's me. Um, but again, with psychedelics, if people have an experience of a visionary realm, um, um, then they may be connecting with um, forms of consciousness beyond their own. One of the things my friend Terence McKenna said of the psychedelic experiences, of, of psychedelic experiences, he said, they're made of mind, but they're not made of my mind. And in other words, he was saying that they connect us with other forms of consciousness and some greater than our own. Um, and some forms of psychedelic experience, uh, you could say that they're just visual displays, being like going to a very exciting film or something. But some give a sense of much greater connectedness um, uh, to realms beyond the human. Um, so, um, you know, not all psychedelic experiences are the same, and, but um, I wouldn't say it's just in the brain. In fact, I don't think any of our normal consciousness, even just normal vision, I don't think is in the brain. I think our minds are extended beyond our brain all the time. Could you explain a little bit about, more about morphic resonance and the existing, or bringing into existence of festivals that have been forgotten hundreds of years ago? Bringing into existence to act, surely. To bringing back, sorry, I didn't catch the quite exact question. Morphic resonance. Yes. And the remembering of festivals or sacred places that don't no longer exist. Oh yes. I think morphic resonance can tune us in to things that happened in the past and recover memories, but we need something to do the tuning. Um, and, you know, when you go to a holy place, example on pilgrimage, if you go to a holy place like one of the temples in Benares or Lincoln Cathedral or, um, you know, the, the Friday Mosque in, in Delhi or something, any, any holy place, um, or Croke Patrick in Ireland, you um, come into resonance with those who've been there before because you're exposed to the same stimuli, you're getting the same pattern of influences on your nervous system that bring you into morphic resonance with people in that place in the past. And that's one reason I think that holy places have the power they do because um, there's a kind of memory that you tap into of previous people's spiritual experiences in that place. The converse is true. If you go to a place where terrible things have happened, you may get a feeling of something awful having happened there. And through taking part in rituals, um, 
Um, especially if it's a ritual we've never done before, or even ones that have almost died out and have been revived. There's, um, you can, through morphic resonance, connect with those who've done it before across time. So um, I think morphic resonance helps to understand both the power of holy places and the power of rituals through this connection with the past. Thank you. <clears throat> You've explained something that happened to me when I was six and I wasn't aware of it at the time. I fell into a swimming pool at the deep end thinking it was shallow end and I had the experience of drowning. I don't remember the panic or the recovery, but I remember extreme bliss. And I've, ever since then, I've never had a fear of water or drowning. And, but it did do something to me after that. It gave me something to search for afterwards. I was looking for something that um, I've had many experiences since because I was looking for something a bit more enlightening in my life. But it mm. certainly at that point changed things. Mm. And I wasn't aware that that actually was a seminal point in my life. Well, that's very, very interesting. I mean, it's, uh, it's unlikely you'd have a state of bliss through just the discomfort of being in the water unless you had had some kind of near-death type experience. So perhaps that's indeed exactly what happened. It may have been like a spontaneous baptism experience. And I think that, um, you know, for people who have had mystical experiences, many, do, many people have them spontaneously in childhood. Um, there's um, a lot of people remember these experiences from childhood and it actually influences all their later life because they know that there's a state of connection with something much greater than ourselves that's possible because they've actually experienced it. Um, well, anyway, I've never heard of anyone having an experience of nearly drowning as a child like that, but it makes total sense in the light of what we've been talking about today. Um, first, firstly, I'd like to thank you for your talk. Um, uh, there's been this constant theme of bliss that comes about when people meditate and kind of have spiritual experiences. Um, but I find myself in my own experience, I find, I find it hard to grapple that with tragedies that happen in the world, for example, the Rwandan genocide, or as I relate to personally, um, the uh, Israeli occupation of Palestinian land. Um, how do you find spiritual experiences and this constant theme of bliss that relates directly to consciousness, um, how do you grapple that with the tragedies that goes on in the world? Well, that's a really difficult question. and. Um you know, it's partly a question of one, I mean, obviously one can focus on anything one wants to focus on. And some people focus on tragedies, um, and it's good they do if they help people who've had these tragedies. Um, if one only looks at tragedies, one could easily get very, very depressed. Um, I try myself to think of when there are tra tragedies, if there's something I can do about it, I try to do something about it. Um, if it's not something I can do something about, then I pray for people involved in the tragedy. Um, and, um, you know, I do what I can to prevent tragedies happening. Um, but I think if we're going to be effective in dealing with all the many bad things that happen in life, we do better if we come from a position of connection with um, realms of greater consciousness or bliss than if we're 
just thinking about the tragedies. A lot of people in aid agencies and in the Green Movement undergo a kind of spiritual burnout because they're spending their whole time relieving disasters and floods and tsunamis and catastrophes and epidemics and stuff. Um, and unless they're able to reconnect with that source of joy and love within themselves, um, they rapidly burn out. So I don't see it as either or. And I think people who've been, who are most effective at dealing uh, in healing and in helping often have this very strong spiritual connection. I mean, it's, it's actually fairly um, built into most religions. They have different ways of doing, dealing with it. In Buddhism, it's more a way of removing the causes of suffering in oneself. Um, you know, suffering comes, old age, suffering and death come from desire. And if you can abolish desire, you can undergo a kind of permanent ontological suicide um, of just ceasing to be. And that is an ultimate goal, at least, of Theravada Buddhism. Um, the Tibetan type, the idea is you re reach the level of bodhisattva, you come back and to help all sentient beings. So your enlightenment is actually to help you help others. In the model of Jesus, uh, which is, after all, the central model for Christians, Jesus was certainly not immune to suffering. In fact, he suffered a great deal himself. And he spent much of his time going around healing people and curing people who were suffering from mental and physical diseases. Um, he was also operating at a time when the Jewish people were oppressed by the Roman occupation. Um, but all his activity was continually informed by his um, spiritual life and his sense of connection. So I myself don't see them, as I say, as in conflict. And I don't see that uh, spiritual practices necessarily blind people to the suffering in the world. In fact, they may make them more able to deal with it and do something about it. Um, hi. Thank you for uh, your talk. It was great. And you talked about the presence of the past and mm. how people transmit rituals and superstition throughout the ages. Mm. And I'm curious to find out your opinion about tarot cards and how they uh, transmit some archetypal human behavior and what, what's there underneath. Well, I've never, I mean, I've had people do tarot readings for me, but I don't practice tarot cards. So I can't claim any expert knowledge of this. I mean, they're obviously an oracular system in the sense that they reflect to people archetypal patterns uh, which may help them. And there's only a limited number of archetypes. And um, a particular tarot card focuses on an archetype which may or, not, may or may not be relevant to a person at the time. Um, but they can often help people because they do give a connection to this kind of archetypal realm of experience and wisdom. Um, whether or not the process of divination whereby you pick the right card or when you're doing the I Ching, get the right hexagram, uh, how you explain that, um, I don't know. Um, so I haven't spent much time on it, as I say. But I do feel that the, um, anything that tunes into archetypal patterns or situations is going to help us because it's going to help us see things in a bigger context than our own personal distress or concern. 
I mean, all these spiritual practices are really about connecting us with something greater than ourselves. Um, if we're just isolated, separated, we're generally speaking um, unhappy and unsatisfied. And um, these practices are all about making us feel part of a greater flow, part of a greater conscious state, part of a greater tradition, um, and or part of a greater archetypal pattern. I, um, um, I, I enjoyed your talk. I, I take all your points about spiritual practices helping with human flourishing and happiness and stuff. Um, as a, a materialist, the, the claims about the brain existing outside the body are hard for me to take, and I think that applies to a lot of, a lot of people. What, what do you think you could, you could do or say that would help people to, to kind of believe that and understand that maybe um, outside of direct subjective, subjective experience? Well, this is a good question, and it's a very relevant one, because our entire educational system uh, is really steeped from the materialist worldview, as is government and, and um, um, business. Um, I think there are two levels to this. The first level is the level which to recognize that one's mind is not just one's brain, even in ordinary, everyday consciousness. This is now nothing to do with the spiritual level, it's just to do with the way vision works. Um, and so, for example, I mean, this is a long theme, I, I won't have time to go into it, but let me just give one example. How does vision work? This relates to how the mind works. Now, you're seeing me now. Um, the usual view is that lights reflected from me goes through the electromagnetic field, enters your eyes through the lenses, inverted images on the retinas, changes in the cone cells, impulses up the optic nerve, and changes in various regions of the brain, which can be studied through brain scanning. Um, that's very good as far as it goes, but does it explain vision? Well, no, it doesn't explain the subjective experience of vision. It explains changes in your brain. Um, now, the first problem is, how is it that you're aware of what you're seeing? And that's the so-called hard problem of consciousness, because materialism has no theory of consciousness. Um, it, it has uh, the idea that it must be somehow arising from the brain, but can't say how. So that's the first problem. The second question is, where is this vision? That the normal view is that somehow your brain generates inside your head um, a 3D colored virtual reality display, which includes me standing here and the rest of this room. And all that's supposed to be inside your head. That's the official view. When you look at the stars at night, um, the stars and the sky you're seeing are inside your brain. Your experience is all inside your brain, so your skull is beyond the sky. Um, that's the official view. Now, the view I'm suggesting is the much more traditional one found all over the world and believed by children until they're 10 or 11 without question, mm -hmm. which is that light comes into the eye, changes happen in the brain, and you then project out your images. So your image of me is projected. It's in your mind, but not in your brain. It's projected to where I am. Everything you're seeing is a projection of your mind. And that's why when you look in mirrors, uh, the projection goes straight through the glass because it's not physical in the same way light is, which is bent by the glass, reflected by it. That's why you see things in mirrors. You're, you're seeing your own projections in the mirror. Now, 
if this is just uh, if this is just a philosophical point, um, then you might say it's just one of many views. It's not scientific. But because I'm a scientist, I try to find ways of testing this. So in this case, if something is projected out from your eyes, a field of vision, let's call it, I call it a morphic field, a perceptual field, which is a kind of a morphic field. It doesn't matter what you call it. Something's, my image of you is projected to where you are. So my mind, in a sense, is reaching out to touch you. Now, if you got your back to me and you didn't know I was here, could my projection onto you, the reaching out of my mind touching you, affect you in such a way you could feel I was looking at you? And as soon as you ask that question, you realize the sense of being stared at from behind is very common. Over 95% of people, including children, have had it all over the world. Why? Why does this happen? The materialist answer to that is one that's moderated through active skeptic groups who are designed to uh, counteract any suggestion that materialism is not the true view. The materialist answer is that's just a superstition. It doesn't really happen. Or if it does, it's because you turn around all the time and you see someone behind you, uh, you remember it, but you forget all the times you're wrong. That's the standard view. Now, you can actually do experiments. You can do tests, uh, randomized trials, people are blindfolded, someone's behind them through a mirror or one-way mirror. Can they tell when they're being looked at? The answer is yes, above chance. There's now overwhelming evidence that this can happen above chance. And even when people are watched through closed circuit television, there are physiological responses uh, when they're being watched, uh, unconscious physiological responses, the activation of the sympathetic nervous system when someone's watching them. Animals have this too. They can tell when they're being stared at by someone who's hidden. Um, and I think it's evolved through predator-prey relations. It's a basic animal sense, the feeling of being stared at. But because it doesn't fit the materialist view that it's all inside the brain, this is not mentioned in psychology courses. It's completely airbrushed out of normal university discussions. And those of us who do research on it are attacked for being uh, superstitious and uh, skeptic groups sort of a, a, attack. In, no, I mean, my Wikipedia page has been completely taken over by skeptic activist groups who <laughs> think that I'm spreading misinformation and pseudoscience by investigating these questions. So, um, in my book, The Sense of Being Stared At and Other Aspects of the Extended Mind, I discuss ways in which, in our ordinary everyday being. Our minds are far extended, far beyond our brains, just through walking around, hearing things, seeing things. We're also connected with others um, at a distance, as in telepathy. And I've done lots of experiments on telephone telepathy, which show that the common experience of thinking of someone who then rings is not just a coincidence or a superstition. There's very good evidence now it's real. You can do an online test on my website on mobile phones. Uh, to test your own abilities. So I think that these kinds of phenomena show our minds are normally rooted in our brains but extend far beyond them. Just like the field of a magnet is rooted in the magnet and extends beyond it and the field of your mobile phone is rooted in the phone and extends invisibly beyond it. Or the gravitational field of the earth is rooted in the earth but extends beyond it. So our minds are rooted in our brains but extend beyond them. So that's the first step that our minds are extended even in ordinary everyday consciousness. And that takes you way beyond standard materialism. 
and is still completely scientific. And the idea of fields, invisible fields, is the basis of the whole of modern science. It's not as if that's some woo-woo idea. Um, and uh, then when it comes to conscious experience, the f experience of con contact with a greater form of consciousness, then I think we just have to let experience guide us. You can call it subjective, but actually all experience is subjective. All science is subjective. I mean, if there were no people around, there'd just be dead textbooks and journals in, in libraries with no one to understand them. Science is about ideas, hypotheses, understanding, connection. It depends on human minds. Take away the minds, there'd be no science. Um, so I think that when it comes to the spiritual experiences of connection with a consciousness greater than our own, then if we have these experiences, we just have to say, which is more scientific, to trust experience, which science is meant to be about, or to trust a theory, which actually isn't very good at explaining these kinds of experiences. And so then I think it becomes a, a personal choice, a decision. Um, and I think that um, it's possible to be, you see a lot of people feel if they abandon materialism, they abandon science and reason. I take the opposite view. I think that sticking to materialism involves denying a whole range of phenomena, like the sense of being stared at, telepathy, exp you know, um, spiritual experiences, which are actually much more correctly included within the realm of science and reason on the grounds they exist, and the evidence for them is, is plain to see. Um, so I think that my whole book, The Science Delusion, is a, an argument against the ten dogmas of materialism. And my, in America it's called science set free because what I'm saying is we don't abandon science by abandoning materialism, we liberate science. And I think it will become more scientific and much more fun uh, when we move beyond the materialist worldview. That's all we've got time for today. Let's give Rupert a huge round of applause. Hey guys, Niall here again. Just one more quick thing before you go. If you're interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, don't forget to go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast and enter your email to sign up. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show.